Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Dr. Abigail Shin. Abby teaches in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Goldsmiths, University of London. And today we're talking to Abby about her new book, Conversion Narratives in Early Modern England, subtitled Tales of Turning, published by Palgrave in 2018. Abby, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Crawford. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's been great to read your book. The subject of conversion narratives is is really fascinating. And I think this is going to be a book that's going to shape how we approach them in the future. But before we talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, well, I'm a, a lecturer at Goldsmiths University of London, um, but the book actually came out of a period when I had a, a postdoctoral fellowship um, at the University of York um, based on a big AHRC project called Conversion Narratives in Early Modern Europe, um, which was a fantastic period where I got to dedicate three years to, to researching the, the book. It's a, the book, the writing process took a lot longer, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, but that was uh, partly where this started. Um, so it was part of that, that kind of postdoctoral research environment. And I was very lucky to work with a number of colleagues in both history and English, um, which was really rewarding and gave me a chance to kind of dig very deep into into this particular subject. I, my background is very much literary studies, as is probably made quite clear from the book, which is very much a literary study um, of conversion narratives as opposed to to a study of, of autobiography as such um, and that I think having that very interdisciplinary environment for a period was very helpful to me because it allowed me to think about the, um, the kind of literariness of these texts via the lens of history and theology for example um, with the help of colleagues who work in those disciplines as well. So, um, so that's partly where the, the particular research area came from um, but I've had a number of, of teaching contracts at other universities as well, um, most recently at the University of St Andrews before I came to Goldsmiths, so I've moved around quite a bit, but but I've, I've very much enjoyed the, the time that I spent at York and the, the time that I spent um, working on this book. But it feels very much that it came from that um, interdisciplinary space, even though my own discipline is very much front and centre um, in the book. And that, that seems to be something which is becoming very important for how I continue to, to think about my own research, actually, is about the intersection of different disciplines, particularly in relation to literary form. Um, yeah, so that's partly where um, where my own research comes from uh, most recently but it's part of that peripatetic movement between different institutions as well and working with with different disciplines yeah and the book has been published abby in that very prestigious palgrave series early modern literature and history so in some ways it's location in the series foregrounds um it's interdisciplinary interests um yeah. tell us a little bit more about the ahrc project the arts and humanities research council project from which this book emerged was it was it peculiarly focused on conversion in literary texts? Um, it was very much focused on conversion narratives, so as a, a very particular form of genre. Um, but it wasn't um, just fixated on kind of literary um, texts as such. I was working alongside a, another postdoctoral fellow who, who was a historian, um, Dr. Peter Mazur, who works particularly on um, converso culture, Murano culture in Naples. So, so there was a, a very different perspective on ideas about writing um, the life of the convert that he brought to the project to to my own. So, so it was it was relatively broad in that sense, but the the, the main point of focus was on on this particular genre and and what it might be doing 
um, in different places um, and also, of course, in different languages um, in Europe at this point. The, the project was run actually between history and English and had two um, project leaders, one of whom was uh, Helen Smith, who is in the, the literature department at York, and then the other is Simon Ditchfield, who's a, a historian of the Italian Counter-Reformation. So... So it had that, that uh, at, at its heart, that, that very interdisciplinary um, background, but, but very much thinking about the process of writing about conversion um, as opposed to the phenomenon of conversion in a kind of broader historical sense. Um, so Peter's work as well was very much about um, the writing of the life of the convert, um, but from a inevitably much more historical as opposed to formal literary perspective than the one that the one that I was taking. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned breadth there, Abby, and one of the things that really struck me as I read through this book, Conversion Narratives in Early Modern England, uh, was actually how European your field of reference is. Um, there's been a lot of work in this uh, particular subject in the past, hasn't there? But it's tended to focus, I think I'm right in saying, on Anglo-American examples. But you really, I think, resituate this discussion in a much broader frame. Uh, that's very true. I think um, one of the things I was surprised by, uh, and which I found very rich um, when I started doing the research for the book, was the extent to which um, English writers were responding to or thinking about um, conversions which had happened elsewhere, um, particularly in Europe, but also um, conversion accounts which were coming out of the New World, for example, and also related to the Ottoman Empire. Um, and while my, my main um, focus or primary focus was on texts circulating in English, um, that also included a, a number of very important texts which were circulating in translation. So works which were becoming phenomenally popular and often had you know, really very long print runs, which might, for example, deal with the life of an Italian convert to Protestantism, for example, um, and the ways in which it became very clear early on to me, actually, that the English literary culture of conversion is heavily influenced by a number of models and archetypes which belong to non-English sources and which are clearly in circulation and are having a, a big impact on how people think about um, the process of conversion and also, crucially, how to write um, about conversion and the different models that you might want to draw upon. And, and I suppose that this, in many respects, is very indicative of... Um, English literary culture more broadly, which of course is not in any way hermetically sealed or, or bounded primarily by um, by English texts and English writers. <clears throat> it's, it's very clear that people are, are reading very widely. <clears throat> they're reading in translation. They're often reading um, texts in languages other than English anyway. So that, that sense of um, a really very... Uh, flexible, I think, response to the models and archetypes for conversion that might be available to an English convert is, I think, actually very central to how people think about writing about this particular, you know, experience, actually. Um, and of course, it partly relates to the fact that when it comes to religious identity, people don't necessarily think about the boundaries of religious identity at all in relation to the boundaries of what we might think of as being national identity, do they? They, they, they tend to be thinking about themselves as part of communities which um, work well beyond the boundaries of a particular nation or a particular language that they feel an affinity with co-religionists all, all over the world, you know, whether that be in, in Europe or, of course, in, in North America. Um, I think part of that that sense of a slightly wider 
um, remit in relation to conversion narratives for, for the book that I wrote was to do with dating as well. Um, the, the book starts in 1580, which is also relatively early um, in comparison to a lot of projects which have tended to focus on, say, North America and um, and England, which have often tended to prioritise the kind of 1640s onwards. And, and I think that one of the things I was able to do was actually to track a, a, a very strange period, very early period in the gestation of the, genre, of, of the genre, before a lot of parameters had become relatively fixed, and before you get that kind of rise in, in nonconformity, which in particular becomes associated with um, North American Protestantism as well as um, obviously what's happening in England. So, so I think the dating also has had, a, has had an impact on the, the range and the scope of the of the material that I looked at. I, I certainly hadn't come across uh, many studies which had, had spent time looking at conversion narratives in translation. For example, there didn't seem to be much which was written on that yet, which got me very excited because it seems to be very central actually to the, the formation of what we might understand as being the English um, conversion narrative is its interactions with and borrowings from narratives which originally come from Italy or France. I mean, these are being very widely read, so it seems inevitable that they're having an impact on how English writers um, decide to reflect upon and portray their own experiences of conversion. Um, it's not um, in any way bounded by those geographical boundaries in ways that you might necessarily expect. Um, so I think certainly one thing that I really enjoyed actually about the project was, was engaging with texts of that sort. Um, I wonder actually if there is scope for for researchers to do a lot more with this than I, than I did, actually, to really kind of push um, and think very carefully about the importance of translation um, for the ways in which um, not just English writers, but also more, more broadly in Europe, how people are thinking about and conceptualising conversion, um, the importance of um, people who are not only translating texts, but who are also um, reading them and disseminating them in their original languages. Um, I think that there's, there's probably scope for, for more work to be done um, in that area um, than I managed in the book, but I think it's a really exciting aspect of that slightly earlier period um, of the genre from the kind of 1580s before the Civil War period in particular. And one of the things I suppose you achieve by pushing the boundaries both geographically and chronologically is the inclusion of a much greater variety of religions or religious voices, um, yeah. but, but also a much greater... A, a much a much bigger ability to include women authors, not only who found themselves in print in this period, but also women authors who circulated in manuscript. That's a, that's a very good point. I think um, one of the things that I wanted to prioritise, if at all possible, was um, a range of different types of texts and a range of different types of experience. Um, a lot of work on conversion narratives, but or, and actually on conversion itself, um, in lots of different forms is often tended to privilege a particular denominational perspective. So, for example, Protestant spiritual autobiography or, or Catholic autobiography, um, or even actually literary texts which have dealt, for example, with the with the phenomenon of turning Turk on the early modern stage. And, um, and that book's obviously been incredibly invaluable, but has, has not always been in a position to think about the correlations and intersections of different types of texts by often very different types of writers. So one of the things I really wanted to try to do was to, to capture, if at all possible, um, the broad 
perspective and range of different types of texts which are circulating in, in the period that I've chosen because it's incredibly rich. I mean, the, the variety of, of texts is, is astonishing actually and the ways in which they engage with very different genres as well is, is, is really interesting. Um, and when it comes to, to women writers, it's very much the case that um, female converts are not really making it into print in any great number until around the 1640s, which is obviously when you start to see a rise in the number of women in print in general, um, let alone when it comes to religious material. So looking at a manuscript as well as print enabled me to, to think about some of those um, kind of slightly less well-known um, narratives, although luckily a number of which have, have thankfully now been produced in, in modern editions, which is very helpful. Um, but it does al- it allowed me to kind of have a much broader scope um, because what I really wanted to try and plot was was those points of continuity and contrast over quite a large range of material, um, which was often uh, quite difficult to do because it meant I was dealing with a large amount of source material of very different types often. Um, but I felt that that was a valuable thing to contribute to a field which has often been much more um, obviously bounded by particular denominations or particular religious confessions in its approach. Um, I think this is something which would quite a few people um, have been doing in different uh, different areas of conversion studies. I'm thinking particularly of Lika Selling's recent book on religious conversion and drama, which in a, in a similar fashion chooses to look at dramatic texts which engage with the theme of conversion um, from all denominational perspectives over, over quite a, a, a broad period of time, actually. And her book is the first to do that for conversion drama. So I think that there's a, there is perhaps a little bit of a shift currently in conversion studies towards trying to map those those points of intersection, connection and contrast across a variety of material because it hadn't I don't don't feel that up until um, relatively recently that had really been done before. Um it does a very different thing but I think it's a, it's, it's very valuable for the ways in which we think about conversion and how it might be thought about and written about across lots of different perspectives and experiences and confessional identities. And what I was particularly surprised about um, when I first started the project was the extent to which there were points of continuity across confessional um, boundaries and lines. uh, There's a number of very easy assumptions to make about kind of the the big differences between, say, a, a Catholic convert and a Protestant convert. But then when we think about the ways in which those converts choose to write, and describe their experiences. There are often very, very clear points of connection and overlap, um, which remind us actually of those those points of collapse actually um, between confessions and denominations, which can be very fruitful, I think, for how we think about the language of religious difference more broadly. And uh, in our is, is 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 that because just to use the example you've you've just used there, is, is that because Protestants and Catholics are both looking back to sources like Augustine's Confessions for models of conversion? Uh, it part, yes, partly it is, I think, to do with um, shared models, uh, models which very much cross um, over confessional lines. Um, it's also, I think, because of the, the dominance of, obviously, um, biblical teaching, um, regardless of you know the various confessional and theological differences that that might encompass. Nonetheless, um, particular Bible stories are proving to be just as important for both Catholics and Protestants. So whether it be, for example, the narrative of the prodigal son or the story of Mary Magdalene, and they're, they're being used by, by individuals from both both confessions um, frequently. Uh, more broadly, I think one of the things I, I really found very compelling was that Protestants and Catholics are themselves subject to or have been influenced by 
very similar forms of rhetorical training. So it's not just that they're reading um, similar models for conversion, textual models for conversion, such as Augustine, such as those found in the Bible, but they also understand the importance of eloquence and persuasive speech from a very similar point of view because they're, they're subject to very similar forms of rhetorical training. So, so it's, it's working um, not just at the level of textual influence but also simply about at the level of your relationship to language as a, as a persuasive force. So a number of writers will um, actually use their, their, their educational training and rhetoric in very similar ways regardless of their religious difference um, which is very important I think for one of the things that the book is trying to do which is to really foreground the importance of, um, of rhetoric and the history of rhetoric for how people choose to um, describe but also to think about their relationship to their, their change of faith or a moment of spiritual enlightenment, um, finding the right language in order to describe something which is um, invisible and intangible uh, for the most part is, is a problem which is shared by, by all faith identities um, and the tools that they're using in order to, to deal with that problem, that particular conundrum of you know the, the inexpressibility of, of something like conversion, uh, the tools they're using are inevitably the same ones. I think when it comes to um, when it comes to forms of literary expression, the use of style, the use of metaphor, etc. Uh, that's a very a very different perspective to take, perhaps than than one which might privilege theological difference. But I think when it comes to modes of writing and expression, there are numerous points of, of um, similarity and intersection across Protestant and Catholic and, and all of the various denominations um, encompassed by those two terms as well. Hmm. well. One of the things I was really struck by in the book, uh, Abby, was the, the distinction you make between the high seriousness of so much conversion with the very ordinary kinds of conversion that might take place. For example, uh, when someone is in Rome and wanting to access some tourist sites, uh, th 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 they will frequently um, make some kind of concession towards local religious practice, a conversion which they will then renounce either on the return journey or when they get back home. So c c conversion means different kinds of things, doesn't it? N not only rhetorically, but theologically too. Yes, it really does. And I think um, the, the what appear to be quite startlingly high numbers of people who take quite a pragmatic approach to um, forms of temporary Spiritual metamorphosis is, is fascinating. I think um, uh, the the examples of travellers in Italy are um, particularly compelling in that regard. I mean, the extent to which travellers felt um, that it was possible to accommodate themselves to the culture in which they were travelling in order to gain access to, for example, the the sites of ancient Rome, or um, in the case of, of, of one one traveller, um, Norwood, the a desire to go and see the, the various places. Which are mentioned in Virgil's Aeneid, you the, the that sense of the the need to go and see certain things while travelling meant that you could accommodate yourself to certain aspects of um, Catholicism in order to allow yourself to travel unimpeded. Um, it seems to be a very clear aspect of you know some travellers' experiences. The problem with this, of course, is that and this, this is what happens with Norwood, is that he goes through a process of um, pantomiming various Catholic behaviours, including uh, taking the mass um, and you know, praying to the saints and you know, spending some time travelling actually with a friar. Um, but the problem is that this actually produces a, a, an actual conversion, and he does become 
all intents and purposes Catholic for a brief period of time. Um, and it's when he comes back to London that his family realise what has happened and, and ship him off to a Protestant preacher where he is then turned again back to Protestantism. So while there is a, a certainly a level of kind of accommodation and pragmatism involved in some conversions which uh, relate particularly to travel narratives, that what you inevitably have is the, the danger, the anxiety and the risk that that um, pretense, that performance might become something much more real. Um, and that's part of why um, individuals who travelled to Catholic countries were, were deemed to be suspicious and that they had to themselves up and make sure that they were suitably protected before they they travelled in Catholic countries because there was always a danger that something like this might have might happen. Um, but then, of course, you also get converts who deliberately travel to Rome in order to facilitate a conversion experience, um, and they often read that process of of travelling as being strangely providential. Um, that it was the, that they were prompted to travel by some kind of maybe initially un, unknown or unrealised. Um, sense of affinity to Catholicism and then once they're in Rome or elsewhere in Italy that affinity turns into something much more um, substantial and then they end up converting properly. Um, so I think that that sense of a variety of conversion experiences is then of course what is reflected in the variety and the, um, the richness of the different types of texts which are produced in order to reflect upon um, that experience of conversion certainly. Um, there doesn't appear to be a, a, a one-size model. Um, very few people are having what you would think of as being a kind of Pauline um, Damascene moment of, of revelation. It's often much more much messier than that I find um, with most converts in our period. Hmm. Now, as you push back the chronological boundary, Abby, back to the 1580s, as you uh, include within your analysis a much greater geographical um, gender and even religious variety uh, of, of sources, ca can you see conversion narratives changing over time or the way in which conversion is represented in literary form changing over time? And if there is change over time, is there still enough holding this together for us to think about conversion narrative as a genre? That's a very good question. I think it is partly why um, most work has tended to focus on the later period um, than my own does. And that's because by the, the 1650s in particular, we start to see a, a clearer sense of the stability of the genre um, as a form that's very much associated with, the, with, with Protestantism, with the independent gathered churches and with the proliferation of a number of narratives in print. And, and of course, this becomes kind of capped by the, the work of John Bunyan, um, again, in the, the late 17th century. So this, this has a, a, a very this is a very important moment for what we might think of as, as the stabilization of the genre of the conversion narrative as a form. Um, what I've been particularly interested in is thinking about what it is that we were dealing with prior to that moment, prior to that kind of seeming moment of stability. And it's not, um, it's not a complete stability at that point at all. I mean, by the, in the 1650s and later, the conversion narrative is still busy, um, engaging with other genres and other forms and stories of conversion are turning up in, in unusual places that, and don't necessarily correspond to the expected generic parameters that are often outlined, um, for that later 17th century period. But I think that what you can really see is that in the in the earlier period that I'm looking at, there's a, a sense of conversion as only really just starting to come into um, 
a kind of literary consciousness as a particular state of being that has to be wrestled with in relation to descriptive language. And by virtue of that, it's considerably more flexible, I think, in that earlier period than it will become later. And it's also a, a genre which is, is much more um, compatible, I think, and more accommodating of variety earlier on than it does become after the 16, 1650s. Partly that is to do with, with the fixity which is provided by print and by the, the wider dissemination of particularly Protestant narratives in print because that starts to provide a number, a number of really quite quite fixed models for a conversion process um, which are followed um, and repeated by individuals over time um, from roughly that period but I think and I think that that's probably the big shift that I can kind of see um, occurring is that there's a that sense of a, a very discursive and very flexible um, genre which is only really starting to coalesce um, then results in the 1650s in something which is much more clearly defined albeit not totally fixed after that period and then the incredible popularity of Bunyan's work then means that much work writing on conversion, obviously particularly that from a, a Protestant perspective, but not, but not necessarily solely from a Protestant perspective, becomes very much inflected by the models and approaches that, that his work um, has because it's so incredibly popular and so widely disseminated that it becomes an inescapable benchmark in many respects for the genre. So I think that there is a, a very important series of shifts over the time period that I'm interested in. And it is actually thinking about the, the almost the prehistory of the, the more recognized genre that is one of the things that I've been trying to, to wrestle with. I mean, how do we get to that point of, of a, a more fixed or more um, formulaic view of a conversion experience in the 1650s? What has happened prior to that moment is one of the questions that, that really the book is asking um, and attempting to answer. And this is why you set the book up, really, to have us think about, as readers, to have us think about conversion as a chapter in the history of reading. Yeah, yeah, very much so, yeah. Um, I think the the relationship between conversion and the book has often um, been talked about, but primarily from a Protestant perspective, um, understandably so, given the extent to which the, the faith privileges um, scriptural interaction and processes of reading. Um, but I think that it's the, the longer history is often it's often very much the case that other denominations, including particularly Catholicism, are very interested in the relationship between um, the book and the and the convert and the extent to which uh, the reading of scripture becomes a a spark for a conversion experience um, is, is very important for a number of different people. And I think that that, that relationship obviously is, is heavily inflected by Augustine, by Augustine's relationship to the book, but, but nonetheless it's happening in very strange ways, I think, um, particularly in that, that earlier period and perhaps particularly for Catholics that do your experiences of a text as having an impact upon your religious identity may not just be be one of, of reading scripture, it might be reading a variety of other texts which have a relationship to your um, your sense of self or your sense of your um, religious identity written by other religious writers, so again, not, not just scripture, not just Augustine, but also a sense of... Um, Conversion is being mapped onto a shift in reading processes, which is as much about what you then choose not to read as what you choose to read. So the renouncing of certain types of texts, including in particular the reading of play texts or the reading of romance. Um, so that kind of trajectory from 
uh, reading from for pleasure um, to reading for forms of moral and spiritual edification seems to be one of the ways in which converts are, are thinking through the relationship between conversion and reading practices and conversion in the book, which is something which takes us, I think, a little bit away from the model of the, the Protestant who reads the Bible as being the kind of the, the set archetype for the reading convert. I actually think, uh, again, particularly by going a bit earlier, we start to see that sense that um, conversion reading cultures are actually much more flexible um, and often very creative in their approach to text um, beyond just a sense of an engage, direct engagement with the Word of God and that other forms of reading culture are having an effect on how people think about um, their conversion as a process of interaction with the Codex. Um, which I find fascinating. I think it's wonderful that people are, are thinking very capaciously actually about the, the processes of reading and how they might impact upon your your spiritual or religious identity, um, that it's actually quite a, um, a diverse um, interaction with different types of books which might have that effect rather than just Bible reading. Hmm. Well, Abby, it's been great talking to you today. But before we wind up our conversation, could you tell us what you're working on next? Um, I've, yeah, thank you. It's very, very nice of you to ask, Crawford. Um, I'm, I'm working on a couple of things. Um, I'm working on a, a, a project which actually takes me towards drama, but it's only it's a, a relatively small project which looks at the the architecture of conversion in um, the Marlowe play, The Jew of Malta, which is a play in which a, a Jew's house, uh, Barabbas's house, is converted into a nunnery. Um, and that particular article is an, an exploration of the importance of that house within the play for thinking about the, the legacy of Reformation dissolution and, and how Marlowe might be reflecting upon various forms of structural instability in the play which relate to the conversion of monastic houses into um, buildings used for either secular or Protestant use. Uh, including actually the foundation of stranger churches in London uh, in property which previously belonged to um, Catholic uh, monasteries typically. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a close reading of the play, but it's one which draws on the kind of legacy of the, the architecture of dissolution and, and Reformation conversions as, a, as opposed to a, an interest in ruins, which has often been one of the main kind of literary perspectives on, on Reformation thinking um, in relation to structures and architecture. So I'm very interested in thinking about what it means to convert the house in the play and how the play might be thinking about the, the memory of Reformation. So so that's the, the project I'm working on currently with ties in with the book. But then more broadly, more broadly I'm working on a, a project which looks at uh, Edmund Spencer, who's someone that I've been spending a bit of the time with of late. So uh, that's uh, the next big thing will be on him, I think. And that, that will be a book, Abby? Uh, yes, it will be. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. A, Good. A book, yeah, it's a book on Edmund Spencer and popular culture. So thinking about the ways in which he uses texts and other forms of um, literary culture which don't correspond to what we would think of as being elite or canonical work. So everything from fairy tales to beast fable, that kind of thing. So start trying to, to place Spencer in a slightly different system of literary influence to, to one that he's typically been ascribed to, which is primarily about um, his use of classical, um, classical work. So it's about looking for a slightly different view uh, on a poet who's been very much thought about as being um, someone influenced by the classics and thinking about him instead as someone who engages very playfully with um, different forms of popular culture. So that will be the next big project, but um, that will probably take me back. 
That's, that sounds great. Uh, hopefully get you back on to talk about that in due course. But in the meantime, Abby, thank you very much for, for writing this book, Conversion Narratives in Early Modern England, Tales of Turning, published by Palgrave 2018. And thanks for coming on to the show and sharing your time to speak about it. That's great. Thank you very much, Crawford. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.